Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's episode is another cleanup episode as I try and tie together some of the missing texts from previous years on Passion Sunday. So, as I record this, we are just a couple of weeks away from Passion Sunday. So, these are our upcoming readings. And the thing is, is that your pastor in each of these years had so many gospel options to work with. In year A, he could do all of Matthew 26 and 27, or it was possible to shorten it to just 27 chapter, verse 11 through 66. I only covered that shorter reading, so I'm going to pick up 26 through the start of 27. Just a quick summary today, and I'll take it and append it to that that old episode as well. Then he also could choose an alternate gospel from John chapter 12, verses 20 to 43. That John 12 reading can be used in your A in place of Matthew. It can be used in your B in the place of the Mark reading, or it can be used in your C in place of Luke. So it's got play in any one of the three years, potentially, in your congregation. And as LCMS congregations have been bouncing back and forth with Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday for that Sunday before Easter, Passion Sunday being a focus on the whole events of Holy Week, whereas Palm Sunday tried to more narrowly focus on the triumphal entry and what happened on Sunday. Many churches in our, our circles today now will start with the Palm Sunday processional reading, which is John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, and then they'll spend the rest of the service as though it is Passion Sunday. So, today's podcast episode is going to clean these things up. We're going to do John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, the Palm Sunday processional reading, and then we're going to do John chapter 12, verses 20 to 43, so we really we just get to keep on rolling which is that alternate gospel for years A, B, and C. And if you're listening to this in year A and you're trying to pick up that Matthew 26 reading, it's going to be the end of this episode. But again, I'm going to cut that one out and plop it down into the midst of the original year A Passion Sunday podcast. So I'll put it at the end so if you're listening just for the Johns in the future, you can pick those up more easily. So we begin then with John chapter 12, and again, we're going to go all the way from 12 through 43. I'm just going to read it as though it were together, really. Uh, We're not going to make the focal point on breaking in between, because again, you can read both of these the same weekend. You're not going to find John chapter 12 outside of Holy Week in our lectionary. You will find it on Monday in Holy Week, if you come to church that day, if your church is having a service, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 23 are the assigned gospel. And then Tuesday in Holy Week, John chapter 12, verses 23 through 50. So we begin with John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So that's the triumphal entry text that might be read at the start of the service for you this weekend uh, when we come to Passion Sunday. Palm Sunday, Passion Sunday, Palm and Passion Sunday. We miss out on the first part of the chapter, which clues us in that we're six days before the Passover. Jesus comes to Bethany. So the Passover, by the way, is not fixed to a day of the week. It's fixed to the day of the month on the calendar. So the Sabbath day, for example, is every Saturday. But the Passover is going to be the first month of the year, and it's the 14th day of the month. The feast that they are also going to be talking about here is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which immediately follows each Passover and is celebrated for the week after. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th of the month and goes until the 21st. Not necessarily connected to a Sabbath day, although it certainly does in the year of the crucifixion, which is going to kind of be a theme that's picked up within the Gospels. So six days before the Passover in verse 1 was a reference to Saturday. And now after Jesus has had the meal in Bethany, we come to the next day in verse 12. And the people are gathered already for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, even though, again, it seems to be yet six days away from them. They're here. You can maybe imagine that if you are required to make a pilgrimage, to make a trip to be on time for a certain festival and you have to walk maybe hundreds of miles to get there, you're going to give yourself extra time in case something happens. Uh, Even like an injury, you know, you say you roll an ankle or something like that, that would significantly delay you. So people have come already together to celebrate this festival and they're going to stay in Jerusalem until it ends which it hasn't even started yet. So they're there for about two weeks here. And as they learn that Jesus is coming, they prepare. They go and they grab palm branches. Those are cut from trees and also uh, very large shrubs kind of picture. And they start shouting the words of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. The word Hosanna means save us now. Blessed is he, blessed uh, from above a blessing as a gift. So if this is God the Father blessing Jesus, then he's giving him his gifts. He's caring for him. If it's from below, it's thanks. So if this is the people blessing Jesus, they're thanking him for coming to save them. That same salvation they just shouted for. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They just declared him king. That's no minor thing in our context. For the Jewish leaders would be afraid at this time, as are the Romans, to be quite honest. There's never been a 
a calm ease between the Roman and Jewish people. It's Romans' territory, right? The Romans control that land, and it is thus a province, Judea, of the Roman Empire. That's why Pontius Pilate is there. That's why they have soldiers there. But at the same time, there is freedom for the Jewish faith to be practiced and continued in that place. Rome didn't want to bite off that much trouble for themselves. And yet, when these major festivals happened and the people just crammed themselves into Jerusalem, there was heightened alert on both sides. If, if things get out of hand, if the people begin to cause a scene, a stir, a ruckus, a riot, it's going to lead to terrible things. So the Romans are concerned that a riot could break out, so they're heightened alert, swords at the ready, they're ready to strike. They're ready to put down a riot and keep order. The Jews, on the other hand, recognize if the riot happens, then they lose their position. The Romans are going to kill a bunch of Jews and put new leadership in place that will keep the peace. This gets into a lot of what's going on with Jesus during the week, especially the betrayal of Judas fits into that too and that they needed somebody who could help them find a a time where he was alone to arrest him instead of during something so public as this. So the processional, the triumphal entry as we call it, it's it's a military parade. I mean, really, that's what it is. Jesus is riding through town so that people can see their king. In the ancient world, if he conquered a city, the king would ride through on a typically a white stallion to display who their new ruler was. Who is the man that you are to listen to? Well, this is him. Jesus is doing that here, but not in the world's way. Instead of choosing the fancy horse, he fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, coming in on a donkey, a colt that had never been ridden before. Humble. Having salvation is he. So fear not, daughter of Zion. Zion is a reference to the city of Jerusalem, just an alternate name for it. And they're not to fear. So the daughter of Zion, of Jerusalem, that's the Jews, the descendants of those who were there before. Don't be afraid. Your king is here. And what's that going to mean for them? It means rescue. It means salvation, deliverance from their enemies who have been oppressing them. And you can start to see why the major picture of the Messiah at the time was that he would save them from Rome. This crowd expects Jesus to ride that donkey into Jerusalem and start a rebellion, kick Pilate out of town, establish a throne for himself, and that Israel would be its own country again. That's what they mean when they shout, Save us now, Hosanna. But thanks be to God that Jesus knew our bigger need, and instead of simply saving us from one enemy in the moment, he chose instead to save us from all enemies, from those of sin, death, and the devil that sought to destroy us forever, not just in the moment. 
So as Jesus rides into town, we read in verse 16 that the disciples did not yet understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, to be glorified is to be lifted up, and typically it's so people would look at you and see. From John's Gospel, going back to chapter 3 and how he relates to the account of Moses in the wilderness, lifting up the bronze pole that the people would see it, Jesus then says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It would appear to be that this glorification could simply be a reference to the cross, that Jesus is lifted up for the whole world to see. You can push it further. As Jesus is lifted up again when he ascends into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of his Father. They remembered these things. It's giving them credit more so than the scriptures usually do if we say that this glorification is a reference to the cross. The disciples tend to not get it. They tend to not put stuff together until Pentecost. So if we instead push it to the ascension, that's a little closer. I mean, it's 40 days after Easter, 42 days after the crucifixion, and just 10 days away from Pentecost. But those are your options with that that particular phrase. Now, why is the crowd come? According to John, the crowd that had been with him in the previous chapter, chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. So he goes to Mary and Martha's house. Lazarus is already buried, been dead four days. There's a crowd of people there mourning with Mary, and yet they come out to see. They think she's going to the tomb to grieve, and then they see Jesus instead. And they hear him call out and have Lazarus walk out of the tomb alive. Those who have seen that, they've been going around spreading this news wherever they can. And that gives us then verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The people in Jerusalem have learned that nearby in the village of Bethany, a mile away on the east side, this guy, Jesus, raised somebody from the dead. And now he's coming to Jerusalem. If he can raise the dead, what else can he do? Save us. Save us now. That's their picture. The Pharisees, I can picture them grumbling as they do this, start to speak to one another saying, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So as they've been making various plots, seeking to kill him, struggling to find the opportunity, that's where Judas comes in. As they've opposed him, it hasn't mattered. It hasn't stopped the Jews, the people in general, from seeking to follow Jesus. So that's the text that may be read in your church at the start of church this weekend as you celebrate the passion of Jesus. Introducing the processional, and maybe you'll have palm branches and you can wave them in your congregation, remembering, recalling the events of this day, but knowing that Jesus is our King, even today. So we continue in John chapter 12 with what would be the alternate reading in your A, B, or C for Passion Sunday instead of Matthew, Mark, or Luke's gospel account 
Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We start this text with the idea that, again, the people have gathered to Jerusalem to worship the Lord at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the 15th through the 21st day of the first month of the year. We're not there yet. We are still in the week leading up to that celebration, but people have arrived in Jerusalem early so that they're not late and miss it. And we're told also coming for this festival are some Greeks. We're not told specifically where they're from, but a fairly, I think, solid educated guess is that they're from what's called the Decapolis. The Decapolis is a group of ten cities, mostly on the east side of the Jordan River, with just one of them on the west side, which would be a city called Scythopolis, if I'm saying that correctly. S-C-Y-T-H-O-P-O-L-I-S, Scythopolis. It's the only one not east of the Jordan. But north-south-wise, they go as far up as Damascus in Syria, and they go down quite a bit south of the Sea of Galilee as well. So it stretches a decent region. Now, these cities are named Scythopolis, Hippos, Gadara, Pella, Philadelphia, not the one that's known typically from the New Testament, which is over in Asia Minor, Gerasa, Dion, Canatha, Damascus, and Rafana. Now, again, of these ten, we don't see all of them really showing up in Scripture, but the Decapolis is our likely option here because they're mostly inhabited by Greek peoples as this region has been Greek for the last few centuries, going back to Alexander the Great's conquest in the 4th century B.C., 330 is when he conquered Persia and would have taken a lot of this territory. Anyway, Philip is from the city of Bethsaida, which is two miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And so as these Decapolis cities kind of span in that region... This is in the midst of them almost. So it's possible that some of these men knew Philip or knew of Philip. Philip himself, his name is Greek, and so there's that connection too. Maybe they just found him to be approachable because he was like them in that way. And as they come to Philip, they simply say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I wouldn't read anything nefarious into this request, unlike maybe a Pharisee wanting to bring harm to Jesus. This seems humble. It starts with a title of respect, an address of respect, I should say, with Sir. 
Philip takes the message along, and then Andrew and Philip take the message along, and then Jesus gives a very strange response. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He, he seems to ignore it altogether. I think what this has to do with is what we saw in the text for the really the beginning of the chapter of, of John chapter 12, and then even the end of the text right before it, the last couple of verses, in verses 17 and 18, where the people who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they've been going about everywhere telling people this good news that the dead have been raised, and we learn in verse 18 that the whole triumphal entry, that crowd gathered that day, is because they had heard about this raising of the dead. And so it seems quite likely the Greeks are there wanting to see Jesus for the same reason. Who is this guy? Did he really do that great thing? And that would give us insight into why Jesus responded this way. It's not why he came. He didn't come to be a bread king. He didn't come to help people cling to their earthly lives. His hour has come. The reason for why he came has come, and it's to die. He's not going to just hang around and, and do tricks for people or do even great miracles for people. He's going to do something better. He came to do something better. Yes, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus died again. Lazarus will be raised on the last day and will live forever. There's something greater about why Jesus came. If you have a grain of wheat, if it just remains alone, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it falls into the earth and dies, it produces new. So you think of the seed. A seed is worthless by itself, but if you put it in the ground and you water it, you get a crop. It grows more of itself. And so Jesus uses this as an analogy of himself. If he does not die, we have no life. Without his death, there is no church. But with his death, there is a church. He bears much fruit. He bears us. Because he has, again, forgiven us, redeemed us, rescued us, saved us from sin, death, and the devil. This is why he came. But verse 25, whoever loves his life, so whoever seeks to cling to this world and to what he already has and what he already knows, well, he's going to lose it. Because ultimately this world just leads to death. So maybe you're a great king and you have a lot of power. And then you die. You have nothing. Maybe you have a nice family, a nice house, a, a lot of comfort. But you die and you would have nothing. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So a little trickier language and phrasing here. But essentially, the idea being communicated is that whoever prioritizes Jesus and faith, he is the one who gets to live. And the way I think we get there with this difficult phrasing, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. So that's the, that's the challenge, because it's not just he who hates his life in this world, so he who doesn't want to be worldly. It's that you hate it and then you keep it. 
So it's almost as though the hating of this life is a reference itself to the suffering life of a Christian. Just as Jesus is living a, a life that is not meant to be wonderful, the, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He wasn't born in a palace even though he's a king. He was born among the lonely, the lowly, the poor. He's not here for the things of this world. He is willing to suffer and even die in order to give us life. And so it seems that this maybe plays out best for us to understand this phrase too. That we would, the life that we would love would be the life of Jesus. And so we are willing to suffer. We are willing to be the one despised and looked down upon by the world. And in that we have life through Christ because we join him in his suffering. And so if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Verse 26. That makes perfect sense, right? If you would like to serve Jesus, if you want to be his, his bride, his child, whatever New Testament metaphor you want to pick up on, you have to go with him where he goes. Where I am, there will my servant be also. And where is Jesus going? He's going to the cross. He's going to die. He's losing his life in this world in order to have life with us forever. Willingly laying down his life for the forgiveness of our sins. And so where he goes, we go. We don't cherish this life and the valuable things that this world values, we cherish Jesus. And we seek to live with him, to serve with him, to suffer with him, knowing that he is ours and we are his. If anyone serves me, so Jesus saying, whoever follows him, the Father will honor him. That's going to get picked up on in the next paragraph. So the idea that God will honor us, welcome, welcome us into his new kingdom. But let's read the next paragraph and let Jesus say it too. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe 
in the light, that you may become sons of light. All right, we just ended with another one of those really strange responses from Jesus, but we'll get to that. My soul is troubled. Jesus acknowledges that he is struggling, he is suffering. But what is there that he can do? He rhetorically says, Should I ask, Father, save me from this hour? The answer to that is no. He's not going to ask that question. Why? He answers, For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is why Jesus came, to glorify God the Father. That is to lift up the Father, that the world would see him and see his mercy and his love and his forgiveness and the gift of life that he gives, the salvation that he alone can bring to us. Jesus did not come to love his life. He came to love us and to restore us to our Father in heaven. Father, glorify your name. Similar to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. And so God answers. God the Father speaks from heaven to Jesus. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now the have glorified it, maybe we parallel this simply with the the Exodus account, that God rescued and redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, and now through Jesus Christ he will glorify it again, as he will rescue us from our slavery to sin, death, and the devil. I think that's a nice, clean, crisp way to do it. But the Lord glorified himself through all of his many things of old. He glorified himself in the creation as Adam and Eve looked to him and all the animals looked to him. He glorified himself in the flood as Noah and his family trusted in him above all things. And they boarded the ark, even though it didn't make a lot of sense. Yes, we have the exodus, but we also have, well, we have the destruction of Pharaoh's army. We have the the wilderness wanderings, the manna that fed them for 40 years. We have the crossing of the Jordan River. We have the driving out of the various tribes who live in the promised land so that God can give it to his people. I mean, Jericho's walls don't just come crumbling down because Israel blows trumpets. They come crumbling down because God is fighting for his people. Right? If I go outside of my church right now, and I look at the the building, and I take a trumpet, and I walk around the church, and then I blow my trumpet, I don't have the promise of God attached to that sound. God glorified himself. It's not that Jericho's walls were made out of rubbish and were about to fall down on their own. God did it. Yes, he worked through the people. He was showing them to trust in him, that he would lead them in the fight, and that's the first conquest in the promised land. He leads them through the rest of it. God glorifies himself through the years of the kings in various ways. I mean, I'm going to just jump to Hezekiah. I know I'm jumping forward a long way. And skipping over something as simple as David and Goliath. But Hezekiah is threatened by Sennacherib, king of Assyria. There's 185,000 soldiers mounted against Hezekiah, getting ready to defeat Israel as soon as the crack of dawn. And what happens during the night? The angel of Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, 
goes down into the Assyrian camp and slaughters 185,000 soldiers. Saves his people. All of these kinds of acts of God, these mighty powers, these works of old, glorified him. And now, now he's about to act again. Again, Jesus Christ is death on the cross. The Father is glorified. He's lifted up for the world to know that he is God. And salvation comes from him. It is his gift to us. The crowds, they respond with a little confusion. Some say it's thundered. Some say an angel spoke. Well, this seems to be normal. We don't really get the picture at Jesus' baptism of the people who are there when God opens up the heavens and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. None of the gospel authors actually tell us who understood that phrase. Is it just Jesus? Is it also John? Do the crowds get it? The transfiguration account seems to be clearer. The people present, Peter, James, and John, recognize that it is God speaking. But here, not so clear, just exactly what they've heard. But Jesus points out that the voice came for their sake, not his. Jesus didn't need to hear this. He knows the Father's plan. He's going to carry out the Father's plan. This is for them, the crowd, to recognize that something greater is going on here. This isn't an ordinary man. We're not having an ordinary festival this year. This is different. What's different? Now is the time of judgment. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's a reference clear back to Genesis chapter 3, that God gave Adam and Eve dominion over this creation. They were to care for all things, but they broke it. They rejected God, and they handed this creation over to the devil, whom Paul in Ephesians 2 calls the prince of the power of the air. Jesus has come to cast out the ruler of this world, not the ruler of Rome, not the ruler of Jerusalem, but Satan. He has come to remove Satan from his power over us, and he has by his death on the cross. We do have a couple of hymns that we'll call the cross of Jesus, his throne, which is kind of strange, but also fascinating language to consider. Regardless, Jesus takes away the devil's power. His power is to accuse. His power is to threaten us with the guilt of our sin, a guilt that we rightly deserved. But on the cross, Jesus Christ took it away. He took our sin away. He nailed it to the cross. His blood covers it, shed for us, for it, done. And so when the devil tries to accuse us, it means nothing. When the devil seeks to take your sin and hold it over your head and say, Jesus Christ can't possibly forgive you for this, we just point to the cross. Yes, he can. And he has. It's gone. Thanks be to God. This leads me to one of my favorite Luther quotes. 
He said, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Luther liked toying with the devil and shouting at him, so it's not a bad encouragement sometimes. Don't take the devil on fist for fist, because we don't stand a chance, but in Christ, Satan's already defeated, and that includes for us. That power's being undone, has been undone. So verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And I do think we can see this in both the cross and the empty tomb language, that he's lifted up from the earth. Well, he's literally lifted up off of the earth in his crucifixion. As his body is hoisted up into the air on a cross. This is John 3, verse 15. And everybody sees it. All people come to the cross, right? How many people, how many nations, how many... How many Christians over the last 2,000 years have looked to that cross of Jesus Christ, even though, yes, technically we can't see the actual cross that he was crucified on and so forth, but we look to that moment. That event in history, that's where our eyes are fixed because it's from there that we have life. It's from what he did that day. But he's also lifted up from the earth in terms of, we would say, his resurrection. That he was laying down. He was laying on the earth in the tomb. And he's raised. He's lifted up. And thus he draws people to himself again by the power of his resurrection. This is our faith. 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is still in vain. But indeed Christ has been raised from the dead. And that changes everything for us. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So I think John wants us to look at the cross there more specifically than the empty tomb. As crucifixion required hoisting up on the cross, hoisting up off the ground. And that does seem to be the way the crowd then also hears it. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. One of the verses they might have in mind there, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God had promised to King David, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne in Jerusalem forever. God is going to establish a new kingdom. He's going to give us a king who reigns forever. That's their picture. Who is this man? Son of man. And this is where Jesus gives the second strange answer of the text. The light is among you for a little while longer. That light's him. Jesus is the light of the world, John 8, 12. So walk while you have the light. Live. Serve God. Care for your neighbor while Jesus is here with you. Lest darkness overtake you. So trust in Christ. Follow him while he's here so that evil does not have the upper hand on you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. So he who resists Jesus doesn't realize he's going to hell. Now this is a bit of an analogy picture, right? 
If you stumble around in your house in the middle of the night, in the dark, you don't know where you're going. Or you get lost at night somewhere as you drive around in your community. But while you have the light, believe in the light. Jesus is here. Believe in Jesus, that you may become sons of Jesus, that you may become his family, that you may get to partake of the good deeds that he has done, that you may be that much fruit that he bears when he dies, from verse 24. So who is this son of man? He doesn't say, it's me, I'm a king, look at me. You have a son of man with you for just a little while longer. Enjoy it. Learn from him. Time's coming, and he'll be lifted up. Text continues. We'll just finish the text here with, well, I guess it's 36b all the way through 43. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. A really dark ending to this section today. Jesus leaves them because they don't believe. He's performed so many miracles, but they don't believe. You can think of his being taunted and mocked as he hangs on the cross and how they said that if he would just perform a miracle, then they would believe in him. That hasn't worked before. He's raised Lazarus from the dead, and instead, what are they doing? They're trying to put Jesus and Lazarus to death to put an end to this nonsense. That's their view. Oh, he healed a man with a withered arm. He must be evil, it was the Sabbath. He casts out a demon. He must be of the devil. It doesn't matter what good works Jesus does. The world sees him for what they want him to be, not for who he is. And this is what the prophet Isaiah said. So we have first in verse 38 a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Then verse 40 seems a little less a quote from Isaiah directly as we have it, but more a recollection of Isaiah's call from Isaiah chapter 6. So what you see in verse 40 you can find very similarly in Isaiah 6 verse 10 as he reflects on his call. We'll come back to that in a moment. First, verse 38 from Isaiah 53, the word is shared. The prophets would proclaim the glory of God, and oftentimes the people would not believe. They could see his miracles and not believe. So it is still. 
the arm of the Lord, so his fighting for his people, stretching out his arm with a sword, a, a military image to fight to win. He revealed himself to Israel, and yet they rejected him. Here is Jesus, and he's about to lay his arms bare on the cross, and yet they reject him. So the Lord hardens their hearts. They've rejected him. They've walked away from him. And in certain times in God's judgment, I mean, he gives everyone the opportunity to repent. But after so long, yes, he hardens the heart. Pharaoh had the opportunity to repent in Egypt. And he rejected God five times. The very clear and vivid miracles being done right in front of his eyes. He rejected him much more frequently before that, too. And eventually, the Lord just, that's it. He hardens Pharaoh's heart the rest of the way. Pharaoh's done. Pharaoh's lost, and he's never coming back. And unfortunately, this happens to the sinner. This is Romans chapter 1 that reads this way, that eventually, the Lord simply gives the hardened heart of a sinner what they want. They wanted the desires of their heart, and they wanted a life without Jesus. Here it is. You have what you asked for. And it's not good. So we pray for our, our fellow man to repent. There is much re rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. This is why Christ came. And God's patience is fantastically long-standing endures much but eventually his patience with us runs out with this creation with the hardened heart of sinners and his judgment does come so Isaiah can speak these things verse 41 because he saw God in his glory and again Isaiah 6 his call as he panics when he sees God knowing that you can't see God and live and yet the Lord spares him we read in verse 42 another sorrow that many of the authorities, many of the leaders believed, but they couldn't bring themselves to confess that faith because they were afraid of the Pharisees. The Pharisees had made it the point, the case, that if you believed in Jesus, if you want to follow him, you know, we can't stop you. If you want to follow him, go ahead, but you're out of the synagogue. You cannot come into the Lord's house. That would also include the temple. You're gone. You are cast out of Israel. You've been cut off, to use the Old Testament language. They didn't want that. They weren't willing to lose their life in order to have life. They were too busy clinging to this world, clinging to their life as they knew it. And that, too, is a tragedy. They love the glory of man more than the glory that comes from God. It's a caution, a warning that Jesus gives his disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. So by these texts, as we prepare for the passion, the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his suffering and holy week, 
The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We thank God that he has created faith in our hearts, that we are his, that our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ, and that we have been lifted up to be with him forevermore. Thank you, Lord, for your good gifts. Now I'm coming back and I'm, I'm re-editing this Year A Passion Sunday reading, which the pastor has the option of Matthew 26 and 27 in their entirety, or shortened to Matthew 27 verses 11 to 66, or John chapter 12 verses 20 to 43. The John 12 reading can be found now on the website for this podcast. It, it's been recorded on March 22, 2023, or if you're on the the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary, the actual episode guide page, there's a link to it right after the episode link for Passion Sunday in year A, B, and C, because it's in any of those three years. But Matthew, Matthew 26, verses 1 through 27, verse 10, they didn't originally make this episode so I'm going to go ahead and I'm just going to plow through them. And this is a lot of text. There's not a good and easy way. This would be a couple hours worth of Bible study. So I'm going to give you minor uh, key thoughts along the path here of what happens to Jesus on Wednesday and Thursday leading up to, again, what we've already covered of the Passion account of Jesus in Matthew 27. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So the Jews, their leaders, want to get rid of Jesus Christ. Again, they are gathered together for this festival, for Holy Week, it's leading up to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 15th to the 21st of the month. Lots of people there. Uh, the packed city of Jerusalem has Jewish leadership on its edge, as are the Roman soldiers. Riots are likely when you get so many people together, and then that would mean the Romans use the sword to strike the riot down and restore peace and order, which is very bad for the Jewish people if that happens. So they want to get rid of Jesus, but they don't want to do it publicly because then, well, uh, a riot would break out. They want to get Jesus by stealth to kill him. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Bethany, one mile east of Jerusalem, Simon the leper, and a woman unnamed. 
Luke chapter 7 also has this account in it. So does Mark chapter 14 and John chapter 12. It's possible we have a few different accounts going on. Simon the leper is mentioned by Matthew and Mark. Simon the Pharisee is mentioned by Luke. Could be the same guy. Could be a Pharisee who once had leprosy. Jesus healed him. And so now he's welcoming Jesus into his own home. The woman is only ever named in John's text, where we find out it's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha from Bethany. This isn't their home, Simon's home. And the oil, the ointment, is poured on his head in Matthew and Mark, but on his feet in Luke and John. Now, that's pretty simple, uh, to just simply say that it was poured on both and that different moments were being reflected by the disciples as they, they share that with us. It's possible that all four of those accounts are the same account. It's also possible, though, uh, Luke is the most different, so his seems chronologically to be earlier in Jesus' ministry, so that is a possibility. Or it could just be a recap given later. The point here, though, that I want to focus on is the idea that Jesus Christ is the anointed one. She anoints him. We don't really see Jesus get anointed otherwise. Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew, and Christ, Christos in Greek, they mean anointed one. That's the the definition of those words. And Jesus is anointed for us. He's our prophet, priest, and king. Those are the three classes that received anointing, that is a, a setting aside by God with the pouring of oil in the Old Testament, marking them for one of those functions. And Jesus is all three of those for us. God has set him apart for this purpose. The anointing, though, it's really only seen in this. I mean, he's baptized, but that's water. This is where some kind of an oil is poured over him. Anyway, verse 13, very true. Everybody in Christendom, having heard the gospel, has heard of this woman and what she did in love for Christ. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So Judas, for 30 silver, betrays Jesus to death. He doesn't realize it's for death. He'll repent, or at least try to repent, when he comes through that recognition later on. Verse 17, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better 
for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. So we come to Thursday of Holy Week, Maundy Thursday, and we come to the evening as they have their meal together. We call it the Last Supper, at which the Lord gives us the Lord's Supper that's coming up just ahead. And we have it revealed that Judas is the betrayer, although seemingly somehow not recognized by the other disciples. Maybe Jesus actually specifically hides it from them so that they cannot react and they cannot prevent Judas from doing it. Or maybe he simply speaks quietly and the other disciples truly didn't hear it um, simply because it wasn't said to them. Verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom the Lord's Supper, the the cherished and beloved sacrament of the church that Jesus Christ has given to us, that he takes his body and his blood and he gives them to us, often, regularly, whenever we want it. This is the only account that mentions forgiveness. You'll find these words in Mark, you'll find them in Luke, you'll find them in 1 Corinthians 11, but it's only here in Matthew 26, verse 28, that the forgiveness of sins is tied to the Lord's Supper. But it's here. It's Scripture. This is why we believe it, this is why we teach it. That this meal is not an ordinary meal, that we are not just taking of bread and wine that are supposed to remind us of what Jesus did. We are actually receiving the very body and blood of Jesus. As he said, this is my body, this is my blood. The Apostle Paul agrees in 1 Corinthians 10:16. he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? This is truly the body and blood of Jesus. Luther said, in, with, and under the bread and wine because we have no idea how it works. Let's just throw a whole bunch of prepositions out there. We don't know. Jesus said it. We take him at his word. I don't understand how the bread is also the body of Jesus. There are some who say it becomes, that it's no longer bread. That's more than Jesus said. And then there are those who say it doesn't become his body body at all. That's definitely not what Jesus said. So we try to take him at his word and let the mystery remain a mystery. We don't have to understand it in order for it to be true. I don't understand God and yet I know he's true, right? So let God's mystery be a mystery, but trust in what he has said that this is for you for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 30, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. 
Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They sang a hymn, family devotion style, right? Right after dinner, they sang together, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives where the betrayal would occur. And even though Jesus warns them that it's coming, they don't believe him. The irony of Peter denying Jesus to say that he won't deny him, right? Jesus says, you'll deny me. Peter responds, I'll never deny you. That's a denial right there. He's rejecting, he's resisting what the Lord has said to be true. He's going to grieve that very much so later. Then Jesus went, verse 36, with them to a place called Gethsemane, which means olive press, oil press. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayer is at hand. Gethsemane, the oil press, it's not the olive harvest season. That press is going to be busy. As it's on the Mount of Olives, they'd harvest all the trees, they'd bring it all to the press, working, working, working to make oil and then bring it to market. But when it's not that harvest, the press is empty. And it's a place where Jesus and the disciples seem to frequent and spend some time to get rest. Judas knows where to betray him, where the the chief priest can find him away from the crowds at the press at Gethsemane. So Jesus prays there three times. Same prayer, it seems, that the Lord would, the Father would sustain him, basically, give him strength to face what comes next. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber, 
with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So Judas betrays Jesus. Crowds of soldiers, really the, the chief priest's own temple guard, that have come out to arrest him with weapons as though he were a criminal. He's been in their house, he's been in their temple all this time, and they've done nothing. But now they come at him in such a strange way, an undeserved way. But as Peter, as we know from the other Gospels, draws his sword seeking to protect Jesus, because he still doesn't get it. Matthew 16, Get behind me, Satan, for you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. He's fighting to protect Jesus. And Jesus says he could have had 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers. Can you imagine 72,000 angels coming down and fighting for Jesus? Rome wouldn't stand a chance. And Jesus is stronger than all of them. But this is why he came. I won't get into self-defense conversation with this one. Um... I will let Jesus' words in verse 52 stand for themselves. He who takes the sword perishes by the sword. The government is given the sword by God, so there is a role for it. But by and large, as Christians, we suffer alongside Jesus. Verse 57, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? A secret trial in the middle of the night. The Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, consisting of 70 men and led by the high priest, supposed to be faithful, supposed to follow the Lord, and instead they're seeking to put God to death. And as they do, oh, how they break the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21, that section. I'm going to skip a little bit here, but verse 16. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before Yahweh, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, 
and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. The rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be a life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And here, the chief priest has specifically sought false witnesses for the purpose of putting Jesus to death. Each of these men who came forward in verse 59 and verse 60 that they found none, each of these should have been executed by the Jewish council for the crime of seeking to put a man falsely to death. That's the penalty Deuteronomy 19 specifies. And yet, instead, it's the very leaders of the people who should be the closest to the Lord in terms of knowing his word and and a love for him and a leadership of his people. They're the very ones seeking it. And Christ will die the death that they deserve, the death that we deserve. Verse 69, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So just as Jesus predicted, told Peter back earlier in the chapter, in verse 30 and following, that he would deny him three times, so Peter does. And he weeps. But he's not alone. All the other disciples have done it too. They've all disappeared. They've run. They've hid. But here we are. Christ is alone to suffer and die for the people. Chapter 27, verse 1, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Pretty simple, straightforward. They shouldn't have been meeting in the night anyway, but now that morning comes, or probably around 6 a.m., they deliver him to Pilate the Roman official who has the authority to put him to death, and that's what we'll see into chapter 27 next. But first, the last part of this added section to the gospel reading, verses 3 to 10. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So we wrap up this section with a quote from Jeremiah chapter 32. 
But other than that, just a note on Judas. Again, he betrayed Jesus, and yet when he sees that they want to put Jesus to death, he repents. I know it says changes his mind here. It's the Greek word for repent, too, though. So I'm not sure. I think the English translators are kind of fudging the text here just a little bit so that we were not led to believe this was a legitimate repentance. Maybe they're trying to seek seek to change our, our way of understanding repentance on this. I'm not really sure. But the word repent means to turn. That's all it means. So you turn from one thing to another. So you repent of your sin. So Judas betrayed Jesus. He could repent of that by turning away from the Pharisees. That doesn't necessarily mean he turns towards God, right? In fact, that's kind of what we see happen. I am facing the west wall of my office. I could repent. I could turn from the west wall and face the north wall. Or I could turn the other way and face the south wall. Or I could do a 180 and face the east wall. I have options when it comes to repentance. Judas is grieved by his sin. And he goes to the only person, unfortunately, that he thinks he can go to with that sin. He goes to the high priest, the one who was in charge of the Old Testament forgiveness of sins, of the Day of Atonement reconciliation with God. But that's the great tragedy of this text. They don't have any forgiveness to give because they've rejected Christ, the author of forgiveness, the author of life. And so as he presents his sin to them in a confession, they respond in some of the most evil words ever uttered in creation. What is that to us? See to it yourself. The sinner was left with his sin and told to figure it out. And as Paul talks about sin in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses. All Judas had to do was die. And so that's what he did. We grieve. I mean, imagine going to your pastor today and confessing your sin and hearing, what is that to me? See to it yourself. But you're the, ones, you're the one God gave to me to forgive me, to speak of forgiveness in my life. What do you mean, what is that to me? Thanks be to God for faithful pastors. And may he provide more. For the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few.